We're building the best internet talk radio on the planet. It is worldwide. Talkzone.com. Talkzone.com. It's time for Healthy Talk Radio. By the powers vested in me, by the Federal Communications Commission. Coming to you live from the headquarters of the Global Health Network and across the world wide web. (gasps) Computers can do that? It's America's longest running radio program dedicated to your health and wellness. What's taking place here is an alternative approach. Now, the woman who's changing the face of healthcare each and every day. That's the fact, Jack! Here's Deborah Ray. Good day. Welcome to Healthy Talk Radio. I'm Deborah Ray. Well, uh, you, uh, UK man thanked the paramedics this week when he saved his life over the weekend after his, st- his heart stopped not once, not twice. His heart, thanks to 12 heart attacks in a row, stopped a record 12 times and he's around to talk about it. Wow. Well, he's an award-winning science journalist who has penned a book that is creating quite the controversy. Because how many times have we looked at the ever-growing body of evidence about dietary information only to think... It conflicts. What's the right diet for me? It's a book that challenges the conventional wisdom on diet, weight control, and disease. Journalist Gary Tobbs joining us today. Good calories, bad calories, right here on Healthy Talk Radio. Now, the news and views about the news you won't hear anywhere else. The Healthy Talk Radio News Digest. Well, it was the point of um, a very visible news story, grunting in the gym, or as others call, I guess a little more politically correct, loud fitness club exhalations. A certified strength and conditioning specialist, a professor of physical therapy at Simmons University in Texas, has led two studies assessing grunting's ability to maximize your exercise exertion. During his research, uh, this professor, Professor O'Connell, had a variety of people lift a very heavy dead weight, pull that weight upward. They were told to either stay quiet during the lift or grunt during the lift. And what they found is they did improve their ability to lift these heavy dead weights if they grunted during the exhaustion. Now, of course, they say there's a variety of reasons behind this. Uh, Send more money for more study. But just how these loud vocalizations improve force output remains unclear. Somehow this grunting quiets inhibitory nerve cells in the spinal cord, or we can send more money for more study with the experts sounding off on work-out grunting. Well, it's the fact that the clock is again about to change. And according to today's online edition of Current Biology, German research indicates that changing to daylight savings times may give you an extra hour of sleep. We love that fall backwards now, don't we? But your internal body clock never really adjusts to that change that when you change the daylight uh, savings times according to your clock, you don't change anything related to the sun time. And that's, of course, one of those basic human arrogances, according to this German researcher who led the study. 
that we can do whatever we want to, but we forget that there is a, bi- a biological clock as old as man that can be that cannot be fooled. That people's internal clock, their circadian rhythm, follows the sun and changes depending on where you live in exactly four-minute intervals, exactly the time it takes for the sun to cross one line of longitude. So why the uh, upcoming change um, of, of the daylight savings clock might fool us, it doesn't fool our body. And the research pretty compelling because he collected the data on sleep patterns of 55,000 people found that sleep time on days off work when daylight savings time took effect followed the seasonal progression but not under daylight savings time. Interesting that our body clock never really adjusts. Well, if you um, count yourself among the health conscious who want to keep those pounds at bay, a new study at the International Society of Obesity's annual meeting has some interesting bits of information on that. They find um, that chewing gum makes a difference, as does your marital status. We've already spoken about the fact that when you get married, there is an accompanying weight gain for both men and women, hotly debated on you know, what are the either emotional or physical or maybe even environmental, you're getting better meals in a, in a relaxed atmosphere, reasons behind that. But they also found that chewing gum as you prepared a meal, according to the University of Scotland, These people had fewer hunger pains and, in fact, ate less. Just like chewing food makes you feel smooth, uh, fuller, with the University of Pennsylvania weighing in that chewing on an apple before your lunchtime meal could cut back your calories calories by nearly 200. So I guess the take-home message is stay single, chew gum, or come on. Come on, and when we make a commitment to regular exercise and being mindful of we eat, perhaps that's the ultimate solution. Well, we know it's one of the top five killers in this country, respiratory disorders. And now according to some research uh, presented from Kaiser uh, Permanente out of Oakland at the American College of Chest Surgeons annual meetings, a couple of drinks helps your lungs, the evidence mounting that a daily dose of alcohol not only helps the heart, but is also uh, a good part of helping lung function as well, that it's less than two glasses of alcohol per day of of wine, beer, or hard liquor, decreasing the likelihood of developing obstructive airway disease. So is it about the antioxidant, the anti-inflammatory nature of a couple drinks of alcohol a day? Obviously, these respiratory disorders uh, are linked to inflammation. And, of course, um, we also need to take a look at the fact that um, these researchers commented that there's a lot of literature on nutrient supplementation as it relates to chronic lung disease, that healthy nutrients... Uh, Fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains are associated with better uh, lung health 
And of course, if we take a look at the traditional models of medicine, those from the Eastern discipline, that uh, deep breathing makes a difference as well. Well, they're stepping up their fight in schools to fight obesity with the number of children hospitalized in the U.S. for health problems linked to obesity tripling over a recent four-year period that the schools are now indicating that fast food, sedentation, soft drinks are all seen as some of the main culprits of childhood obesity. So schools deciding in many cases that they want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And um, with obesity in Arkansas stabilizing ever since they took a strong stand on the matter, thanks to their governor at the time, Governor Mike Huckabee, who in fact uh, led a governor's alliance on uh, really taking a stand on uh, our lifestyle that led to all too many cases of obesity and the obesity-related diseases like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and uh, even arthritis. Many schools now weighing in that it's time to get those vending machines out of the schools, get the junk food out of the cafeterias, make some regular physical activity part of the mandatory curriculum helping to wage the war against obesity because we're now seeing doubling of rates of hospitalization from type 2 diabetes in the teenagers, now um, uh, tripling of the incidence of hospitalizations associated with diseases um, that have a correlation with obesity among our children. Sobering indeed. Well, can it cure it or does it just kind of remove the stimulus of the problem, a surgical procedure that removes excess tissue in the throat helps to either cure or improve obstructive sleep apnea. The procedure is a tongue twister. UPPP, uvula palatopharyngoplasty, eliminating sleep apnea in one quarter of the patients. You know, 25% is not a particularly great success rate, but apparently they were excited enough at the University of Florida to present their findings at the annual meeting of the American College of Chest Surgeons. And if you want to read more, we'll post the news at our website today, HealthyTalkRadio.com. We're going to return to talk with a noted science writer, Gary Tobbs, Good Calories, Bad Calories. He challenges the conventional wisdom on diet, weight control, and disease right here on Healthy Talk Radio at 800-307-3002. Check out Deborah Ray online, now with live audio streaming and audio archives of past shows, plus news stories, guest information, and the fast way to find books you've heard mentioned on the show, only at HealthyTalkRadio.com. A privilege uh, to have a very special guest join us today to talk about a book. Um, well, it's engendering some controversy, and wisely so, because <laughs> there appears to 
us as healthcare consumers to be so much conflicting information out there, particularly relating to, to matters of nutrition, the, the diet du jour. You know, is the science really there to back up uh, what often seems like marketing claims? Well, he has put all that to the test and put together uh, just a masterfully done book, lots of uh, solid science to back it up, when he began to challenge the conventional wisdom on diet Weight Control and Disease. The award-winning science journalist Gary Tobbs join us today to talk about his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Gary, hello and welcome. Yes, hello, Deborah. How are you? Um, well, nice to have you join us. Thank Thanks. you. So did you envision, Gary, when you took this on? Because obviously this took a lot of work to really put that to, to the level of expertise that you do all of your topics. Yeah, I'm actually uh, kind of stunned where I ended up in all this. I just started out, my expertise was good science and bad science and controversial science. And I don't know if you know this, I started out in physics. Oh, really? And I just sort of followed the bad science in this field in public health for, you know, it's been going on now for about 15 years, and looking for something that you could actually rest your convictions on. And this, that I ended up in this, this world where I'd become a sort of a diet heretic shocks me. <laughs> you know, I, even, I actually started off, and there was one point I, I was kind of, uh, like everyone, I was kind of frustrated with the food police, the people who were telling us not to eat fat, not to eat salt, and, and now I have a book out suggesting that you shouldn't eat carbohydrates. And the whole thing's a little crazy, actually. So you trace it back to the 70s. Tell us the the, the historical um, aspects of this journey that resulted in good calories, bad calories, Gary. Well, what happened, it it begins in the 50s with this idea that uh, there was a fellow named Ansel Keys, a nutritionist at the Mm -hmm. University of Minnesota, who initially became convinced that cholesterol causes heart disease and that fat in the diet is raises cholesterol and you know this was the, the initial hypothesis was dead wrong it wasn't total cholesterol it wasn't total fat so as keys and others start doing their studies they start um, varying the hypothesis to try and explain you know the, the actual lack of heart disease in some populations and through the 1960s and into the 1970s is a very legitimate scientific controversy because the evidence is ambiguous. It's very hard to show that if you get somebody to lower their cholesterol or change their fat content that they'll live any longer. And what happens in the 1970s, politicians get involved, and in particular George McGovern has a Senate committee on nutrition and human needs that was originally formed to deal with malnutrition in America. And they did some great things with school lunch programs and making sure that everyone got a decent meal. And as they started to run out of things to do, they decided that since they've been dealing with overnutrition, they'd flip to over what they undernutrition, they'd flip to what they called overnutrition. And this decision was not made by the senators. It was made by the Senate staffers who were all young lawyers in their late twenties or early thirties. And these kids knew nothing more about it than what they read in the newspaper. And in nineteen seventy six they assigned one 
you know, their, their local writer to write a report, and this is a very nice guy who used to be a, a labor reporter in Providence, Rhode Island, and he spends a few months researching the topic, and he comes out with this report called Dietary Goals for the United States, mm -hmm. and McGovern throws a press conference to announce this report, and it's the first government report that actually suggests that we should eat a diet that's low in fat and high in carbohydrates. And up until now, there's been a scientific controversy. The evidence simply couldn't, wasn't clear enough to make this kind of pronouncement. But the politicians and the Senate staffers didn't care about the science. And once McGovern's report came out, then you get this sort of domino effect where other agencies want to get involved, and everyone wants to tell Americans, tell the rest of us what they think is good for us. And by 1984, you've got this low-fat diet dogma locked in, and there's no evidence, no compelling scientific evidence to convince anyone of, you know, who's not biased already that it's going to actually save lives if you eat like this, that it's going to make you live longer, and there's actually plenty of reasons to think that it's not. So that, that's how it all got started. It was a sort of political statement, not a scientific revolution. How intriguing. How intriguing. Yeah. And, and is also, as, a, as you present in your book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, uh, uh, Gary, the fact that uh, McGovern, um, I guess, had attended Pritikin's program. Yeah, it's funny how everyone's preconceptions uh, get involved in this business. In this case, McGovern, actually all the senators on the staff are basically middle-aged men with weight problems. So they were interested in knowing how they could prevent heart disease. And, and McGovern himself and his wife had attended the Pritikin Longevity Center down in Santa Monica. And they had, um, you know, McGovern himself told me that they didn't, he didn't last more than about four or five days. <laughs> but what McGovern, what Pritikin seemed to be saying that, you know, fat is evil and the lower the fat content of the diet, the better, just resonated with them. And we all had this idea that, you know, Fat is somehow yeah. well. One of the probably yeah. There's this conspicuous consumption idea that people are starving all around the world, and Americans are eating this fatty meat. And it takes, you know, you could feed several villages in Asia on the grain that it takes to fatten one cow for New York businessmen to eat at their local steakhouses. So there, there again, it was a lot of social issues, a lot of political issues. What. I was shocked when I went to actually read the literature. What was lacking was actual science. Um, in fact, there were some studies where they randomized people to low-fat diets or cholesterol-lowering diets. Right. And they had more deaths in the group who ate the diet that they're now recommending for the rest of us than in the groups that were just told to eat uh, whatever they wanted. But whenever these people so fervently believed in their hypothesis right. that they always found a reason to ignore any evidence that contradicted it. But wasn't it intriguing that you know that that cult that became a cultural conditioning, Gary? As you as you comment in your book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, you know that FAT was BAD. Well, you know it's funny. We had, um, I mean, I my formative years in the '80s, and we all believed that if you ate, you know. The less fat in the diet, there was this belief that, among other things, you couldn't get fat if you didn't eat fat in the diet, that you would prevent heart disease, that you would live forever. And it's funny, it carries over today in many different ways. The underlying hypothesis keeps being massaged and 
you know, so went from being all fat is bad to just saturated fat is bad, and then monounsaturated fats are good, and omega-3 fatty acids are good, and omega-6 fatty acids are bad. And there are all these variations on what constitutes a healthy diet, but they all begin with the fat content of the diet. And if you actually look again at the evidence, and more than just the scientific evidence from the past 40 years, there's about 120 or 30 years of anecdotal evidence of that, you know, back prior to, say, the Second World War, the, the British had missionary and colonial physicians all around the world, throughout their empire, you know, who would run missionary hospitals, right. and they would administer to large local populations of, you know, South Pacific Islanders or Africans or, you know, wherever they happen to be, Indians, Asians, who were eating their traditional diet. Right. And then they would have small populations of Westerners, traders, missionaries, loggers, merchants. Sure. And these people would all, they, there was this sort of universal observation that who, people eating well, the Gary, dish. I don't want to miss a minute of this. I, I hate okay. to do this. Hold it right there on that thought. We're going to pick that right back up when we return. He's okay. award-winning science journalist. The book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Gary Tobbs joining us today. 1-800-307-3002 on Healthy Talk Radio. You've discovered TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com, the best in Internet talk radio. The information on Healthy Talk Radio may be eye-opening, controversial, and disturbing to some closed-minded members of the medical community, but it is all well-documented and presented by credentialed guests as well as our knowledgeable host. It may not represent the views of this network, this radio station, or its sponsors, but hey, that's life. Journalist Gary Tobbs joins us today, a correspondent for Science Magazine, to talk about um, his latest book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. For those of you who asked me to take a moment to spell T-A-U-B-E-S, a book, um, I mean, it's just required reading for all of us who recognize increasingly that lifestyle makes a difference. And as Gary is educating us, um, this intriguing story dating back decades, um, and you were talking uh, about um, you know, the, the, the Senate committee, uh, the McGovern committee, um, and how this you know forever changed um, you know, philosophy, um, the food industry. Please continue, Gary. Well, as we said, the you know, the Senate committee in 1977 sort of started the ball rolling on this low-fat diet. Right. And the thing you always have to keep in mind is a low-fat diet is by definition a high-carbohydrate diet. And th- there was always this alternative hypothesis out there that carbohydrates were inherently bad, and particularly the refined and easily digestible carbohydrates and starches. And what I was saying before we went to break is that there had been this British theory developed over the course of a century from observations from these physicians all around the world who administered to, you know, populations eating their traditional diets, whether in Kenya or Uganda or in India or the South Pacific Islands. And these people all said that the traditional populations don't suffer from the same chronic diseases that we do in the West. Now, they, they don't have heart disease, they don't get obese, they don't get diabetic, they don't get many cancers. I mean, there's this long-running series of articles in the British Medical Journal and the Lancet saying that these people, they just couldn't find cancer in their populations. And I was stunned when I found this because 
I had never thought I would ever believe such a thing or write such a thing. Right. But right. prior to World War II, it was fairly well documented that in order for cancer to you know for cancer to be as prominent in the population, that population had to eat Western diets. And what constituted the change from a traditional diet to Western diet was the addition of sugar, flour, white rice, beer. You know, the refined carbohydrates that are easily digestible, that spark insulin responses. And this alternative hypothesis, like I said, the, the... these epidemiologic observations on which it was based kind of vanished with the Second World War. People just stopped referring to them. But then what you find happening starting in the 1960s is very good researchers beginning to come up with the biological mechanisms that would explain why carbohydrates, these refined and easily digestible carbohydrates could be a cause of heart disease, a cause of diabetes, a cause of many cancers. And again, I'm, you know, when I first started this book five years ago, I I never believed I would come to the conclusion that that I would be confident enough to write paragraphs even suggesting that something as easy as sugar and flour and white rice and potatoes could be a cause of cancer. But when you actually go look at the literature with an unbiased eye, there's plenty of reasons to believe it's possible. Enough so that I wrote the book as much to get the medical research community to take these hypotheses seriously, to get away from their sort of, you know, tunnel vision focus on the fats on the diet and look at the damage that these carbohydrates can be doing. It is also a unique opportunity, and, and you know, given the fact that we continue to read articles of Gary, you know, a recent journal of the American Medical Association talking about vested interest inside you know medical schools, you know, who's funding this research, and sort of you know the whose bread I eat, his song I sing mentality. Roll that into the discussion. This is a very interesting, uh, very central theme of the book as well. Well, this is what ha- what happens is, you know, often in these debates, people say, well, it's all about who's, you know, what industries are funding the research. And the idea is, if I'm a medical researcher and I get $100,000 to do an experiment from the sugar industry or the saccharin industry, I'm going to get the results that the industry wants me to get because I'm Beano and I'm willing to do anything to make a buck. Um There's another thing that happens here, which is the establishment comes up with their idea, its idea, in this case that low-fat diets are healthy, that we should all eat 6 to 11 servings of, you know, refined carbohydrates, potatoes, and rice every morning, every day. And they tend to fund only those researchers who will support this dogma, who have historically supported this dogma and and there's no it's not like there's a conspiracy it's just the people who work at the funding agents believe that what they've been saying for 40 years is correct so they think the best scientists are the ones who agree with them and when they get a proposal that comes in saying you know i believe that saturated fat is evil and we should all eat low-fat diets i'm going to do this experiment to demonstrate that Mm -hmm. fact or to further confirm it the powers that be think, well, this is a very smart proposal, let's give them money. And if they get a proposal coming in saying, well, I don't actually believe that fat is bad, 
but I'm going to test the hypothesis by, you know, I'm going to rigorously test it to see if I can refute it. They think, well, there's no reason to fund this guy's hypothesis because this guy's proposal, because we know this is true. Sure, sure. And so what they do is they reject the scientist, who's the second guy, and they support the zealot, who's the first guy. And so you get this sort of effect that goes throughout the government, and then what happens is the scientist type, the one who's actually skeptical and willing to do rigorous tests of a hypothesis, he has to get his money elsewhere. So now he goes to the industry, and now industry funds him, and now regardless of what he gets, he's going to be accused of being bought by the people who believe the establishment point of view 100%. So there are indeed these, you know, what happens is, the fellow named David Krzyzewski, who wrote the first textbook on cholesterol back in the 50s, the way Krzyzewski phrased it to me, he said, you know, the government is the biggest pusher of them all, he said. If you do not agree with their position, you do not get funded. And all of this, I mean, sometimes I wonder if it's possible for an establishment like the NIH to ever get the right answer because these problems are so inherent in how they go about doing business. And I actually don't know what the solution is. Well, that is intriguing because, you know, now with managed care and more focus on evidence-based medicine, we see many of, you know, what was dogma in medicine seriously questioned by new science, Gary. Well, this is, and what's interesting is, the establishment doesn't really care. Like even the the evidence-based medicine, there's a group I like a lot called the Cochrane Collaboration. Yes, yes, my favorite, yes. Yeah, and they were formed specifically to do these systematic reviews of the existing evidence to come to conclusions that aren't, that can't be based on the researchers' preconceptions. They have a certain protocol everyone has to follow that says, you know, these are the kind of studies you can include, these are the kind you have to reject, and it's all, this whole protocol, like the entire scientific method, is designed to minimize the biases of the people doing the analysis. And they'll come out with studies showing, for instance, that low-fat diets don't make anyone live longer, or that you don't lose any weight on low-calorie, low-fat diets, or that exercise can't be shown to lose weight, and nobody cares. Again, I had this one researcher at UCLA said to me, it's like just throwing your articles into a black hole. You know, you publish them, you do the research, and because they disagree with the official advice and recommendations and the preconceptions, nobody cares. And it's it's worse than that because you know, I recently did an article for New York Magazine on the issue of whether you can lose weight by exercise. Mm-hmm. And everyone agrees you could lose weight by exercising if you restrict your diet also, but can you simply exercise more and expect to lose weight? And the evidence actually shows that that's simply not the case. And I interviewed a lot of the researchers who write the public, um, the, the, the recommendations for the American Heart Association, the American College of Sports Medicine, and these people personally had no evidence that they could lose weight by exercising. One of them, a very one of the most prominent figures in the field, told me that over the past 35 years he had run approximately 80,000 miles and gained 30 pounds. And yet he believed in his heart that if he could only have run a little more, 
you know, two hours a day instead of an hour a day, he might not have gained those 30 extra pounds of fat. The way he described it, he said, I was, you know, fat and bald when I started running 30 years ago, and I'm fatter and bald today. And it's amazing to me how people can ignore even their own experience right, right. when it comes to coming to some conclusions about these dietary and lifestyle issues on which they have beliefs of, of more akin to a religious nature than a scientific nature. And the perfect example of that is, is your focus in good calories, bad calories on hunger. The fact that we now see this huge weight loss industry where people lose weight but immediately gain it back when they stop and then some more, Gary. Well, this is, and you know, one thing I point out in the book, 150 years ago, you could find medical textbooks saying it doesn't do any good to tell anyone to eat less because they just get hungry. And then again, the obesity, and this is, this is what I think is the most important part of my book, and I'm struggling to get sort of mainstream journalists to take it seriously. Um, for Again, for 40, 50 years, we have considered obesity a disorder of overeating. Literally, people eat too much or they exercise too little. And there's this, you know, the, 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 since the 1960s, obesity, which is a, a chronic disorder of excess fat accumulation, has been treated primarily by psychologists. The leading figures in the field are psychologists whose goal is to try and get people to change their behavior as though this disorder, again, a purely physiological disorder of excess fat is considered a behavioral defect that can be remedied by telling people just eat less or exercise more, get off the couch or walk more, turn off that television. And the example, I mean, imagine if diabetes was treated by psychologists instead of, you know, basically specialists in the hormone insulin. If that was the case, we would have, I guess we'd have a lot less diabetics around today because we'd have a lot more dead diabetics. But the argument I make in the book is obesity is first and foremost, it's a disorder of excess fat accumulation. And back again 40, 50 years ago, before we got obsessed about the idea of a low-fat diet being healthy, Biochemists, physiologists studied what it is that regulates the accumulation of fat in the human body. You know, just like they study growth and the effect of growth hormone sure, and sure. the effect of adrenaline. Mm-hmm. And so they want to know what is it that regulates the accumulation of fat in what's technically called adipose tissue, what we call fat tissue. And they found out that hormones regulate fat accumulation as they regulate everything else in the human body, you know, our sexuality, our growth, or, you know, body temperature, everything is regulated by hormones. And it turns out that every hormone in the body, with one exception, works to get fat out of the fat tissue. And that's because hormones tell our bodies to do something. If you secrete adrenaline, that's because your body thinks you might have to fight or flee, and it wants to, you know, get you to do it. And one of the things adrenaline does, it tells your fat tissue to dump calories into the bloodstream so that if you do have to fight or flee, you have the fuel available to do so. Makes sense. Okay. There's one hormone that actually works to put fat in the fat tissue, and that's insulin. Yeah. And in fact, you can't get fat out of your fat tissue unless insulin levels are low. And what has never been controversial is that carbohydrates 
are that we secrete insulin fundamentally in response to the carbohydrates in our diet. And the more easily digestible those carbohydrates, the more insulin we secrete. So by 1965, all the science had been worked out to explain why we get fat and what we have to do to reverse that process. And once again, nobody cared. Right. And when I asked the people who were around 40 years ago, why didn't they care? They said, well, that's because we know what makes people fat. They eat too much or they don't exercise enough. Um, I'm still <laughs> stunned at their inability. It was one famous diabetes specialist at Harvard who did some of the research from the 1950s. And when I said to him, I had read this 800-page handbook on adipose tissue metabolism that he had co-edited. And I said to him, you know, every, virtually every chapter in this handbook says that insulin drives fat accumulation and that carbohydrates drive insulin levels. And he said, yeah, that's true. Carbohydrates is driving insulin, insulin is driving fat. And I said to him, literally, what's the difference between saying carbohydrates drive insulin, insulin drive fat, right. and just saying carbohydrates make you fat? And his response is, well, carbohydrates don't make you fat. We know what makes you fat. These fat people don't exercise enough. Oh, Gary, hold that thought back with more of Gary Tobbs. Good calories, bad calories. Well worth the, uh, the read. Uh, challenging the conventional wisdom on diet right here on Healthy Talk Radio. She scours six newspapers, every major medical journal, and dozens of websites every day. If it affects your health, you'll hear it from Deborah Ray. Award-winning science journalist Gary Tobbs joining us today. His book, a must-read for every educated healthcare consumer in this country, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And we were talking about um, um, that the body of science, uh, you know, suggesting that you know, carbohydrate consumption equals equals fat. Uh, but is it the quality of carbohydrates? What, what, what does the science show us? Because obviously, and, and you alluded to this, Gary, we eat a lot more refined carbohydrates than ever before. Well, when you actually look at the uh, science, both uh, there are two things that happen, uh, uh, well, three things with carbohydrates that are important. First of all, if starches break down eventually to glucose in your system, right. and glucose raises blood sugar, and insulin levels go up in response to glucose, and both there's plenty of evidence that both blood sugar and gl- insulin have <clears throat> toxic side effects. Excuse me, <clears throat> when they're elevated. Right. Um, in terms of heart disease. Um, Diabetes can, I mean, again, diabetes is, a, is an effect, type 2 diabetes is an effect, a disease in which people have uh, elevated blood sugar and elevated insulin levels, and all those side effects of diabetes are, you know, you see in the rest of us as we get older to a, to a lesser extent. And one of the arguments I make in the book is anything that is increased, that, that any complication of diabetes, any chronic disorder that's increased in response when you, you know, that your risk is increased when you have diabetes, all of those things can reasonably be 
considered problems of excess blood sugar and insulin. And again, if you look at the, the, the scientific literature, there's plenty of reasons to believe that these that the, the best diet is the one that keeps our blood sugar levels and our insulin levels lowest. The third problem with carbohydrates, sugars, in particular you know, the sucrose, the white sugar that right. we, we consume in high fructose corn syrup, is mm-hmm. that they're 50% or 55% fructose. And we used to think of fructose as a healthy sugar because it's, you know, it's, a, it's a form of sweet sugar that's found in fruits. But our bodies did not evolve to consume huge amounts of fructose. Mm. And fructose, it doesn't raise blood sugar insulin levels. So that's one reason why it's been considered healthy for diabetics. But what does happen is it gets dumped directly on the liver. And the liver has to deal with it. And what it does, it packages in lipoproteins as triglycerides and ships it out to the fat tissue. Fatty livers Um, now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so... There is so much more. Gary, can you come back again? I'd love to. This deserves much more of an explanation. You have done a magnificent job. Please, we'll we'll get in touch with you. Please come back again. Okay, I'd be delighted. Thank you, Deborah. Gary Tobbs joining us today, a note uh, award-winning science journalist, Good Calories, Bad Calories, Much Read, uh, Challenging the Conventional Wisdom on Diet. Our thanks to have each and every one of you join us. I'm Deborah Ray reminding you, live long, stay healthy. 